Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. This week marks the beginning of our new series called Cost-Benefit Analysis. Is following Jesus worth it? In the first sermon of the series, Pastor Rob explores the first step in our cost-benefit analysis, determining whether each of us can be a disciple. Let's listen now. Let's pray together. Gracious God, every time we come into your presence, there's so much that we want from you. And at the same time, there's so much of ourselves that we hold back from you. So God, we ask today that you would help us to give you everything we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Does asking about the costs and the benefits of Christian faith just seem wrong? A cost-benefit analysis is a really organized and helpful way to make certain decisions. Harvard Business Review defines a cost-benefit analysis as the process of comparing the projected or estimated costs and benefits or opportunities associated with a project decision to determine whether it makes sense from a business perspective. The cost-benefit analysis framework is a really great way to make a lot of different decisions. In fact, right now I'm using a cost-benefit analysis to make a decision about my Christmas cactus. I love Christmas cactuses, particularly when they bloom. You're going to see a picture of a Christmas cactus in full bloom. Let's just say that's not my Christmas cactus. My Christmas cactus, actually, I love so much, I moved it. It's the only plant I moved from Minnesota to Connecticut two and a half years ago when we moved here. And in the move, it nearly died. But it began to recover, and today it is thriving. It's growing, it's lush, it's green. It's just that when it comes time to bloom, it just puts out a few little blooms. Who wants a Christmas cactus that just puts out a few little blooms? You want a Christmas cactus to put out lots of blooms. So there's a solution. The solution that you can use to push a Christmas cactus that's not blooming to bloom is is you have to feed its love to be in the dark. Christmas cactuses bloom when it begins to get dark outside. And so to cause your Christmas cactus to bloom, what you do is you, you take it and you put it in a closet, a dark closet, for 10 to 12 hours a day, every day. But then at the end of the 10 to 12 hours in the darkness, you have to take the Christmas cactus back out and put it in the light because it needs the light to make the food that it needs to eat. And you do this for four to six weeks. And if you do this for four to six weeks straight, your Christmas cactus will bloom gloriously. But let's just say the cost of hauling my Christmas cactus in and out of a closet every night for six weeks, and the benefits of the blooms have not really made themselves, that balance has not made itself clear to me. I haven't made up my mind. My cost-benefit analysis is still ongoing on this topic. Cost-benefit analysis. Do the costs or the benefits, which outweighs the other? 
There are four steps to a cost-benefit analysis. Step one is to establish a framework for your analysis. And in this, you, you clarify what the question is that you're asking, and you set the goals and objectives for a project. In steps two and three, you identify your costs and benefits, and you assign a value to each cost and benefit. And costs and benefits can both sometimes be direct and indirect in a project. And then in step four, you tally the total value of benefits and costs and compare. And step four is when you make a decision, the tally of the difference between costs and benefits should help you to arrive at a decision. Now, it may seem wrong to perform a cost-benefit analysis on Christian faith, but Jesus requires us to do so. You see, Jesus calls men and women to become disciples of his. But then in Luke chapter 14, he openly says, some people are going to think it sounds like a great idea, but then when it becomes clear to them what it entails, they're going to fall away. And so Jesus says, before coming to Christian faith, before answering his summons, we should perform a cost-benefit analysis. We should sit down and we should determine whether the costs or the benefits outweigh the other and then decide whether we're willing to pay the costs involved in Christian faith. And so we're going to begin a cost-benefit analysis of Christian faith because Jesus requires that we do so. And today we're going to begin with step one. We are going to establish a framework. And by that mean we mean we're going to clarify the question that Jesus is asking us, and we're going to come to understand more deeply the goals and objectives that Jesus is putting out in front of us. And Jesus requires that we make this decision. And so we're going to plunge in. Jesus requires us to make this decision. So let's clarify in step one the decision that Jesus is putting in front of us. Uh, and as we do so, we find that the decision that Jesus requires us to make is going to become clearer when we understand the context. You see, it's ironic that in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 27, Jesus has an unusually confrontational posture with the crowds of people that are following him. Look at what Jesus says in verses 25 through 27. Luke writes, Now, great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. But as we look at the context of what's happened, we begin to understand Jesus' confrontational attitude with the crowds that day. Because in the context of what we read in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 27, in the rest of chapter 14, we discover Jesus going to a dinner party that was given by a prominent Pharisee. Now, during that dinner party, they were discussing banquets and, and guest lists and, and pride and humility. And one of the guests at the dinner said, blessed is the one who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Then in response, 
Jesus told a parable, a story that was meant to illustrate a truth. And in that parable, Jesus said, a certain man decided to give a banquet. And when he decided to give this banquet, he sent his servant out with invitations and he invited his friends. Preparations were complete for the banquet and then the man giving the banquet sent his servant out again to the guests to tell them, preparations are ready, the time for the banquet is here, come and let's join in celebration together. But one by one, the invited guests turned down the invitation and refused to come. And so Jesus tells us that the man became angry and he sent his servant out again, this time to the city streets and to the county highways. And he sent his servant out to compel everyone, the sick, the lame, the poor, to come to the banquet so that they could celebrate together. But he said those who had been invited will never enjoy the fruits of this banquet. He rescinded their invitations. Now, the parable that Jesus tells in the balance of chapter 14 is a complicated one, and we don't have time to get into all of the details of it, but what we find is that Jesus is talking about who is welcome in the kingdom of God. And he flings wide open the doors to the kingdom of God and says, everyone is welcome inside. But that leaves a question hanging. What does it mean that everyone is welcome in the kingdom of God? And on what terms? Then with the banquet complete, the dinner over, Jesus resumed his journey toward Jerusalem, and crowds of people began to join him in this journey. And this is where we find Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and following, with this question about who's welcome in the kingdom of God and on what terms hanging over him, speaking with the crowds. Now, the crowds that were around Jesus, we have to understand, were people who were not people of deep faith in him. Instead, they were just exploring Jesus. They were interested in Jesus. They liked Jesus and wanted to know and experience more of him. They wanted to hear what it was that he taught. They wanted to see him work some miracles, and they wanted to get the benefits of Jesus's ministry for themselves. They were looking to cash in on the Messiah movement Consequently, they were coming to Jesus looking for what Jesus could do for them, not at all concerned about what they could do for Jesus or for the kingdom of God, which meant that their loyalty would change quickly. They could be with Jesus one moment and against Jesus the next. Jesus knew this. He knew all of this. And so consequently, Jesus was always suspicious of the motives of the crowd. Jesus then turns to this crowd that he knows so well, and he confronts them, and he confronts them on the question of their loyalty, and he says to them, I hear what you're saying. You want to be a part of what I'm doing, but being a part of what I'm doing requires loyalty and commitment from you. Jesus wanted them to know that. Understanding the context and the crowd helps us to clarify the decision that Jesus requires us to make because it tells us who he's speaking to. Jesus is speaking to the crowds. He's speaking to people on the edges, considering faith in him. 
Jesus isn't speaking simply to a small group of disciples at the core trying to encourage and explain their faith and push them to deeper faith. Jesus is speaking to everyone, even out at the margins, those who are just beginning to make a decision about Jesus. But in the process, if Jesus is speaking to everyone at the margins of his movement, out at the edges, he's speaking to everyone inside as well. And so in Luke chapter 14, we discover to whom is Jesus speaking? He's speaking to all of us. And what question is he addressing? He's addressing the question, who's welcome in the kingdom of God and on what terms? So understanding the context in the crowd helps us to clarify the decision that Jesus requires us to make. You see, sometimes we are the very ones who have actually confused the decision that Jesus requires us to make because we think Jesus is asking different questions than he's actually asking. Some of us may assume that the question that Jesus is asking us is, isn't Jesus just calling us to believe? Isn't Jesus just calling us to believe? In fact, we think this because we remember verses in the New Testament, like John 3.16, where Jesus himself says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we say, ah, I see, there it is, the word believes. He wants me to believe in him, and if I believe in him, I get eternal life. We go on to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Paul writes, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and here it is, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, Paul adds the concept, you must confess with your mouth. You've got to say it out loud, but it begins with belief in the heart. And if I confess with my mouth what has already happened in my heart, that is, I have believed, then I am saved, which saved is what I want. And so we say, hey, isn't Jesus just calling us to believe? We say, well, yes, see, clearly Jesus is calling us to believe. But the definition that we have of believe and the definition of what Jesus says here are a bit off. Because sometimes when we hear the word believe, what we think we hear is, I must know a set of propositions and give assent. I must agree with those propositions. It's not actually what the word believe means here. We're going to explore more deeply what the word believe means in this context in the month of December, and I look forward to digging into what believe actually means. But when it comes to knowing a set of propositions and simply agreeing to those propositions, we discover that's not what Jesus is asking us to do, not fully. In James chapter 2, verse 19, we read, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons do that and shudder. So if believe, meaning to give assent to propositions that we know, if that's what believe means, it's important and it's a start. And as we explore the term believe, which we're going to do in more detail in the month of December, we will discover that what Jesus means by believe is critical. That is what he is calling us to do. But if believe simply means that we know and agree to a set of propositions, that's not yet fully what Jesus is asking us to do. It's part, but it's not all. 
You say, okay, well, isn't Jesus just calling us to follow him? In fact, in his own ministry, Jesus repeatedly called people to follow him. In Mark chapter 1, verse 17, we read, And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, by follow Jesus, what, what we understand is I will obey Jesus, I will go where he wants me to go, and I will adopt a new way of life. And we are getting much closer now to what it is that Jesus is calling us to do. He is indeed calling us to follow him, to change our code of ethics and to obey him. But to obey him, there's something still more that Jesus wants from us. Which leads us to the question, is Jesus calling us all to be his disciples? Is Jesus calling us all to be his disciples? Well, let's look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and following. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In verse 27, he goes on to say, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. At the end of the passage, in verse 33, we read, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The subject that Jesus is addressing in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33, is who can be his disciple? Having thrown open wide the gates of the kingdom of God and said, everyone is welcome, we ask, everyone is welcome on what terms? And Jesus clarifies the question is, can you be my disciple? This is the question Jesus is asking over and over again. Now, we confuse this decision by, in our minds, mentally creating grades of Christians, qualities of Christians. Rarely do we say it out loud, but we think it. We think there are different types of Christians, different qualities, different grades of Christians. We don't read it in the Bible, but we think it. And we think, well, the the first grade or quality of Christian is really what I would call a Facebook follower. Facebook follower Christians are those who who would answer yes on a survey when asked, do you heart Jesus? Do you believe God? Do you, Jesus, something? You would say, yes, I do. But it means it doesn't change anything for me. Those are Facebook follower Christians. Then the second grade of Christians, one up from there, is the ones who are self-identified as Christians. And we know that those who self-identify as a Christian believe things that others don't and do things that others don't. Self-identified Christians believe more things about Jesus and have a changed life as a result and are involved in more religious activities. Those we consider Christians. 
and then a grade up from there are disciples. And disciples, in our minds frequently, are those who just take this Jesus thing more seriously. And up from there, a grade four Christian, in our minds, is a missionary or a pastor. There's four grades, Facebook followers, Christians, disciples, and missionary pastors. And we think this mentally, and because we think it mentally, we think, well, I can choose my grade. I can pick the one that fits me best. If I, if I want to just be a Facebook follower, I can do that. And we think, if I make a choice now, I can make a different choice later. I can be a, a Christian now, and when I'm done raising the kids and I have more time, I can become a disciple. And if I really enjoy being a disciple, maybe I will be on mission. And, and I can change my grade at will depending on my circumstances and my convenience. But we differentiate things that Jesus does not differentiate. You see, there is no call to get saved at one point in our lives and to become disciples at another point. There's no call to get saved and then become serious. There is one call to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord, to be saved and to become a part of the kingdom of God, to become a believer, a Christian, a disciple, all in one calling. It's one call, not many. We've confused something that for Jesus is very clear, very simple. There is one call. So am I suggesting then that salvation is not free? Jesus himself raises the issue of, of cost in verses 28 through 33, where he goes on to say, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so now we have to ask the question, am I, is Jesus introducing here a hidden cost into the Christian life that we assumed was to be free? Because you see, we don't like hidden costs. We don't like hidden fees. Just try to make an airline reservation right now, and you're going to discover how much you don't like hidden fees. You go on the website, and you say, I need to fly from here to there. How much are you going to charge me? And they say, this is how much we will charge you. And you go, okay, I'm, I'm willing to pay that price. And you know immediately that you're going to get taxes and airport fees added on. You already anticipate that, so you're not surprised by that. But then they say, okay, you want to go from here to there? Would you like to sit somewhere? Because <laughs> otherwise, we're going to sit you right outside the bathroom. That ought to be pleasant. 
You wanna choose where you're gonna sit? That's gonna be another fee. You want a seat next to a window or on an aisle or toward the front? We're gonna charge you a little bit more. You want some leg room? We're gonna charge you more for that. Do you wanna take a bag on? We're gonna charge you for that. You want us to take the bag for you? Oh, we're gonna charge you for that too. And by the end of the checkout process, you recognize that the price that you agreed to pay has been doubled by all of the fees, and you hate the hidden fees. We hate hidden fees. And so am I, as Jesus, introducing a hidden fee to the Christian life? I have to reiterate for you today that salvation is free. The New Testament makes this absolutely clear to us. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And what Paul is saying there is that we do nothing to earn our own salvation. It's given to us by grace. We receive it through faith. We do nothing to earn it. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this reminds us that we can't pay the price for our own sin. Jesus has paid the price for our sin. We can't pay the price for that sin. He pays the price, and we accept the price that he pays. Salvation is free. And at the same time, we recognize Jesus implying in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33, that there is some type of cost to the Christian life. Go back again to verse 26, where he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, next week, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into what he means by hate, but let's just say this week that what Jesus is driving at here is that we must love him more than we love anyone else. He goes on in verse 27 to say, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And we'll dig into that image more next week, but what it basically means is that we lay down our lives for him. And in verse 33, he wraps up by saying, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And again, in this case, what Jesus is essentially saying to us is that we must value him more than anything else in life. And so here we have it. Value me more than anyone else. Lay down your life and value me more than anything else in your life. Jesus is implying that there's some type of cost involved in Christian faith. And so how can something be free and not free all at the same time? Christian faith is free and not free all at the same time, similarly to the way that my seminary education was free and not free all at the same time. When I went to seminary, which is graduate school, to learn how to become a pastor, I received a full scholarship to go. Someone else earned the money and gave the money and paid so that I could study to be a pastor. My seminary education was free. And similarly, the Christian faith is free to us. Jesus is the one who came to earth and took on human flesh. 
He is the one who took the full weight of human sin on his shoulders. He is the one who died on the cross to pay the price for that sin. He is the one who rose victoriously three days later over sin and death and evil. He is the one who makes that grace available to us now. Our Christian faith comes to us free. At the same time, while my seminary education was free, it was not free. I had to pay costs to go to seminary. I had to give up three years of my life to go and study. I had to be the one to do the studying, to do the reading, to write the papers. I had to give up three years of income potential and make a firm decision to become a pastor. My seminary education was not free. It cost me a lot. And in a similar way, there are costs involved in living the Christian life. And what Jesus is saying to us is that the Christian life is free and not free all at the same time. And what we find is that we are in the end to recognize the decision that Jesus requires us to make. We're to recognize the decision that Jesus requires us to make. Because you see, we get confused about what for Jesus is very clear and simple. Jesus calls us to value him more than anyone else in life. Jesus calls us to lay down our lives for him. Jesus calls us to value him and to seek him more than we seek anything else in life. Jesus calls us to be his disciples. And so, The Christian faith costs us nothing and everything all at the same time. And so there is one and only one call on all of us today. There is one and only one decision that Jesus requires that we make. Can you be my disciple? If you have not yet professed saving faith in Jesus Christ, he has a question for you today. Can you be my disciple? Can you believe in me? Can can you put faith in the fact that I am the Son of God, Jesus is saying to us, that I died to pay the price for your sin, that I rose again three days later victorious over sin and death and evil? Can you believe that I am alive and that I am coming again? Can you believe in me? And Jesus asks those of us who do not yet have saving faith, can you follow me? Can you obey me? Can you live a new life for me? And he asks us finally and fundamentally, can you be my disciple? Can you value me above anyone else in life? Can you lay down your life? Can you want me more than anything else? Can you be my disciple? For those of us who have bought into the graded Christian system and believe that there are different kinds and that we are free to choose, he asks us the same question, can you be my disciple? Can you set aside all of those lies that you believed about graded systems of Christians and recognize that there is but one call on you to be my disciple? And can you make that choice to be my disciple? 
And to those of us who have said, I can choose to make the commitment when I want to and when it is convenient to me, the call and the question is clear. Can you be my disciple? Not is it convenient, not does it fit into your career plans and your family plans right now, not can you be my disciple later when it's more convenient, because there is no convenient time in our lives to choose him above all others. There is no good time in life to lay down your life for him. There is no opportune moment that we will find when we can choose him above everything else. And so to those of us who want to time our decision, there is one question Jesus asks of us today. Can you be my disciple? Recognize the decision Jesus requires us to make. Can you be my disciple? That's the question. And recognizing the decision Jesus requires us to make is step one in our cost-benefit analysis. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.